0: From Britain to the Bokhichi, from Lummi to La Push, and from the lordly sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, The climate is so friendly; it's a land that's evergreen.
1: Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for Episode 93, An Early History of the Alaskan Way Seawall. It was non-Indian immigrants that chose the Elliott Bay shoreline that would eventually become downtown Seattle as the location for their townsite in the 1850s because it had two essential benefits for a city at the time. A deepwater harbor and a hinterland rich in natural resources. They were not deterred by the fact that the harbor's shoreline at the time provided relatively little level land for living and working purposes. They were well aware of their ability to regrade hills, construct piers to deep water, and erect seawalls to protect artificially curated land or filled areas, as was customary in towns across the country at the time. At first, settlers made use of the flatland that already existed in the location that is today known as Pioneer Square but was known at the time as Little Crossing Over Place, Piner's Point, and Maynard's Point, among several other mostly forgotten names. From the area where Yesler Way and First Avenue are today to approximately where King Street is, a finger of land stretched southward. Shallow tide flats spread eastward to the base of Beacon Hill and southward to the mouth of the Duwamish River from the tip of the peninsula. As one traveled along the western shoreline, the seafloor sloped rapidly towards the bay's deep water. To the north and southeast, the beach was bordered by bluffs and steep slopes. Homes and certain companies were able to make do on the slopes, but early industries such as timber and coal exportations, of which the city's leaders sought to build its future, required level ground for the transportation of products, the processing of materials, and the storage of supplies. The amount of work required to level fresh ground with enormous earth-moving initiatives proved to be beyond their capabilities at the outset, and so they looked for other alternatives. By constructing a pier out to deep water near the shoreline near today's First Avenue and Yesler Way, Henry Yesler solved the immediate problem of transporting logs and lumber to sailing ships from his sawmill, which was located on the shoreline near the pier when he built the first such structure in Seattle. The pier was expanded by others who needed to ship or receive merchandise or load passengers, and by the early 1880s, according to J. Willis Sayer, that wharf had grown with the settlement. By the early 80s, it was more than 900 feet long, a mini-boomtown of shops, stores, and warehouses. Yesler and his colleagues also began the process of filling in the low regions near the beach. Sawdust and chopped-off logs were squared up and were deposited below the pier, eventually building up the shoreline and extending it westward as a result of the process. Over the next several decades, as the number of sawmills operating on the waterfront expanded, the debris generated by these mills finally accumulated along extensive stretches of shoreline. Seattle's growth was spurred on by the introduction of rail transportation, but as the city grew and an increasingly complex network of piers stretched out from the shore, railroad access to the waterfront became increasingly challenging. Coal and lumber businesses required direct access to the waterfront for their cargo trains, but pier owners did not want access to their piers impeded by railroad tracks crossing them. Because the nearby hills prevented rail construction further inland, the tracks had to be built along the shore. An additional complication sprang from fears that transcontinental railroads would seize control of waterfront commerce by controlling access to deep water ports. Railroad Avenue was established by an ordinance approved by the city council in 1887 in order to prevent this from happening and to restore some order to the waterfront area. With the exception of the westernmost piece, which was granted to a local railroad, the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern, this street was essentially just a right-of-way over the tidelands. Pierce protruded from the right-of-way on the western side of the street. Because of the construction of railroad tracks on trestles, planked streets, and buildings perched on pilings, the tidal area between Western Avenue, which was built largely along the original beach line, and Railroad Avenue gradually filled in, giving the impression that it was an extension of solid ground. A large number of prospectors who traveled through Seattle on their route to the Klondike Gold Rush in 1897 helped to solidify Seattle's position as a supply depot for the territory of Alaska. Already crowded with people, goods, and livestock, Seattle's waterfront became even more clogged as the Mosquito Fleet, cargo ships transporting lumber, coal, farm produce, silks, and other goods around the world, passenger liners connecting Seattle to every continent, and the fishing fleet continued to grow in size. Despite being the focal point of much of Seattle's economic activity, the central waterfront had lagged behind the rest of the city in terms of modernization and development. An editorial in an April of 1908 issue of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer criticized the deteriorating condition of the waterfront. The ramshackle structures of a pioneer era are permitted to exist only in that location and nowhere else. Instead of permanent concrete docks, there are piling-supported temporary wharves that are rapidly disintegrating beneath the assaults of the Toretto. In the case of the Toretto, it is a burrowing marine worm that attacks underwater wooden constructions. The editors called on the city to construct a seawall to satisfy the demands of the bustling port area. Meanwhile, a more severe issue was simmering among the piles of sawdust, masonry, and junk. Long Seng, a Chinese immigrant who arrived in the United States in 1907, died of the bubonic plague. A small number of further cases were recorded, prompting the local health authorities to launch an investigation to determine the cause of the outbreak. Rats were held responsible, which was not at all surprising to anyone, and the deceased rats were traced back to the waterfront, which was even less surprising if that was possible. Inspectors from the health department discovered foul smelling and unpleasant conditions. A sewer line had ruptured in the region of First and Cherry, resulting in a lake of filth that was several feet deep, according to an editorial in the Seattle Times. Aside from that, tons and tons of rubbish from the poultry department were found between the pilings supporting a meat company building located near the sewage lake it appears that a hole in the floor had served as a garbage chute. This was by no means a unique incident, though. J.F. Crichton, Commissioner of Health, wrote to the Mayor and Council in April of 1908, stating that between Railroad and Western Avenues, there is a massive pile of rotting timbers, planks, boxes, and garbage of all kinds which is the leftovers of commission houses, restaurants, and markets, all piled up in one place. Sewers and cesspools are in disarray across this neighborhood. Among them is a cesspool that is 30 feet in length, 15 to 20 feet broad, and 8 inches to 2 feet deep, and it is packed with the most horrendous filth that one can conceive. According to the author, Dr. F.S. Burns, writing in the Seattle Times, summarized the situation as follows. Rats find Seattle to be an ideal breeding ground, and they thrive here. Seattle, on the other hand, is dirty. Initial efforts by the Board of Health were directed at eliminating rats by catching them and ascertaining how many were infected with the disease. In the year 1908 alone, city workers captured or paid a bounty on 57,299 rats and 49,505 of them were necropsied. The underlying causes of the disease outbreak, notably the filthy conditions on the waterfront, were then addressed by health authorities following that. Some structures were demolished, while others were renovated to replace their wood foundations with concrete. Some of the lower sections had been filled in by private property owners or the municipality over the following years. In response to the rat problem, municipal officials looked into the possibility of erecting a seawall along the central waterfront, but because of the steep drop into deep water along that stretch of shoreline, it would take several decades to complete the project. In the same manner that cliffs hampered development inland, the sharply sloped seafloor made it difficult for the city to construct a cost-effective seawall between Madison and Pike Streets while the water depth along the southern shoreline is shallow, the water depth along the northern waterfront is 25 feet at low tide and it can reach up to 12 feet deeper at high tide. A typical seawall, also known as a gravity wall, was built by driving pilings into solid soils beneath and then building a concrete wall on top of the pilings. This design was successful in areas where the fill behind the wall did not exert excessive outward pressure on the wall and where the depth of water did not necessitate the construction of a wall that was too tall and heavy to be supported and held in place by the pilings. However, it was not feasible for the central waterfront portion. The demands of waterfront users also prohibited the city from constructing less expensive walls along the water's edge. Unless the wall was erected further inland, there would not be enough space for trains and other forms of traffic to go down the base of the hillside to the piers. A less expensive sloped pile of riprap extending out into the bay could not be used for the wall construction because the wide base required to achieve the necessary wall height would reduce the usable length of the piers, which already extended as far into the bay as they were able to with the height of piles available. A number of factors intertwined to make financing a more expensive seawall, which would address the issues on the central waterfront more difficult to achieve. A state statute, which was later drastically revised, mandated that nearby property owners, as members of a local improvement district, contribute a portion of the cost of any street improvements that were undertaken. They were also given the authority to halt projects, which they frequently did in the case of seawall proposals. Furthermore, only one half of the entire cost could be assessed to the property owners, and the city did not have the finances to cover its side of the bill either. Seawall construction in the shallower waters south of Madison Street was undertaken by the city and the Port of Seattle during the 1910s and 1920s. The section between Washington and Madison, which was finished in 1916, was a conventional gravity wall constructed of unreinforced concrete and supported by pilings. It was filled in and Railroad Avenue was paved by 1928 and the beach beyond it had been filled in as well. Even in this case, with a shallower slope, the barrier was unable to totally prevent the fill from flowing out. The pavement between Madison and Washington Streets settled in 1929 as a result of the fill beneath it working its way through the concrete wall as a result of tidal action, eroding the soil at the base of the wall and the pressure of the fill pushing down the seafloor slope in the preceding years. When a freshly constructed bridge fell near Madison Street in 1921, city officials took notice of the instability of the sloped seafloor for the first time. Following an investigation into the reason of the failure, they determined that the weight of bricks and concrete from a repaving job on First Avenue that had been dumped onto the beach had caused the seafloor to slide. They came to the conclusion that any stable sort of seawall must put a very small weight on the subsurface. As early as the 1920s, the city began looking for innovative approaches to the problem of the area north of Madison. Due to the increased volume of automobile traffic, which moved faster and carried greater loads, it had become extremely difficult and expensive to maintain planking on elevated streets. It became necessary to close sections of the street until they could be repaired. Some of the planks and pilings were unstable and came away unexpectedly, sending vehicles and their terrified occupants plunging through to the beach below. In the 1920s, the city began preparatory work on a northern seawall that would eventually be built. In order to address the sprawling, unwieldy, and unsafe railroad tracks along Railroad Avenue, officials worked with the railroads to amend their franchise agreements, which resulted in the decommissioning of several of the nine sets of tracks along the waterfront and the relocation of the remaining tracks to the east side of the right-of-way. The 1929 agreement that resulted in the curation of dedicated vehicular lanes freed up space on Railroad Avenue, which had previously lacked such lanes, posing a significant danger to wagons and cars attempting to avoid trains shunting down the coastline. A sidewalk was also curated along the extreme western boundary, which significantly improved pedestrian safety. Funding concerns continued to be a problem for the project, particularly after the Great Depression began in 1929 and reduced the ability of property owners to pay their share of the cost even further. The project is expected to cost $1.4 million, according to the city's estimates. A bond measure of $600,000 was approved by the voters in March of 1932, but the project also relied on a $600,000 tax assessment on property owners as well as additional state money. Railroad Avenue was dubbed a death trap and a threat to the lives of everyone who uses it by Mayor John Doerr, who also warned that every day the hazard of taking human life by inaction is run, yet money for the project was still a challenge to come by. By opposing the assessment, property owners threatened to derail the project, and the mayor was concerned that state financing would not be granted or that other critical projects would be unable to receive funding. After quite a long period of time, everything fell into place in November of 1933. If the city was successful in receiving $396,000 from the State Emergency Relief Fund, the property owners agreed to pay $400,000 to the city. As stated in the ordinance creating the project fund, considering that widespread and acute distress exists among the unemployed inhabitants of the city to such an extent that it endangers the immediate preservation of order and the public health and safety, it is expedient and necessary that work on the construction hereby authorized be begun as soon as possible in order to provide employment. However, while the cost of the seawall was a source of controversy, the environmental repercussions of covering the tidelands were not. The seawall fills in extensive parts of the intertidal zone in Elliott Bay, effectively burying them. As a result, oyster beds and acres of maritime and coastal habitat that had previously supported a diverse web of plants and animals were wiped away, in addition to the disappearance of the estuary at the mouth of the Duwamish River and the tidelands south of King Street. Generations of Coast Salish people made a broad array of household products and utensils for materials taken from the estuary and its boundaries, and they subsisted on the shellfish, fish, and plants that flourished in the area. They also traded those resources as part of a vast trading network that stretched north along the Inside Passage and across the Cascade Mountains into the Pacific Ocean. The cultural and environmental losses were enormous, but in the context of the time, they were not considered serious enough to warrant much attention. While the financial battle was raging, the design work had been progressing. The city's engineers devised two different types of seawalls to protect the city. The first was designed for the area between Pike Street and Bay Street, located between Denny Way and Broad Street and later bounded by Olympic Sculpture Park on the north, where the water was shallower. The second was designed for the area where the water was deeper. A concrete seawall on top of steel sheet pilings that were driven below the soil line and buried underwater would eventually be constructed. The concrete component of the construction was joined to a timber structure on the inland side. It was composed of plumb pilings that were driven vertically into the ground, batter pilings that were driven at an angle, pier caps that created a grid connecting the piles, and a relieving platform made of wooden planks that ran across the top of the pier caps. Despite the fact that the relieving platform was placed underground, it was able to counterbalance the gravitational forces that were pushing the wall outward by utilizing the weight of the fill on top of it. The street was constructed above the relieving platform, and the walkway was cantilevered out from the top of the seawall's face to provide more pedestrian space. The second design was employed between Madison and Pike Streets when the depth of the water reached its maximum. It was decided to extend the relieving platform 20 feet farther inland and to to drive additional pilings to anchor the pier capping. In addition to extending above the seafloor, the steel sheet pilings were covered by a concrete wall which was in turn supported by steel I-beams throughout. Tie rods were used to link the steel sheet piling to the platform for reducing pressure. By utilizing a different construction method, the relieving platform design was able to reduce costs. The concrete and steel portions of the wall could be constructed off-site and then dropped into the water, eliminating the need to construct coffer dams to create a dry space for pouring concrete footings in the wall. The pilings may also be driven into the water, thus the only accommodation required for the water would be the waiting for low tides to be able to install the precast concrete slabs on the foundation. Riprap heaped against the base of both types of seawalls helped to protect them from the eroding effects of tidal action, which had an effect on both the face of the wall and the soil along the base of the seawall. A significant quantity of fill may have escaped from behind the wall through cracks in at joints between concrete and steel components of the wall, but this helped to reduce the amount of fill that could have done so. The city's deadline for bid submissions passed without any applications being received in April of 1933. In January of 1934, a second request for bids went unanswered in a similar fashion. Because of the unusual design of the seawall, the project was considered to be rather dangerous, and the city was unable to find a general contractor prepared to undertake the job. City officials decided to administer the project themselves, employing day laborers for elements of the construction and awarding contracts for materials such as steel sheet piling and portions of the project that needed the use of specialist equipment such as pile drivers. As a result of the state's emergency relief money, all contracts were subject to approval by the King County Welfare Board, which had particular restrictions for who might be hired, under what conditions, and at what pay rates. Materials had to be in compliance with the National Industrial Recovery Act standards. The first contract was awarded in January of 1934 when Manson Construction and Engineering was hired to drive 44 test piles along the length of the construction area. Soon after, Manson Construction and Engineering would be awarded the contract. There are hundreds of specifications and contracts made with multiple businesses for all of the different elements and processes of the seawall's construction in the city's project files which can be found in the city's archives. Columbia, Lockwood, Farrell, and Elliott Bay lumber businesses contributed a total of 1.2 million board feet of dimensional lumber to the project. A total of 27,920 drift bolts in three different diameters were provided by Northwest Steel Rolling Mills. Manson Construction sank 8,200 batter piles, angled piles, and 10,000 plum piles, vertical piles, into the ground. Crosby sand and gravel provided ready-mixed concrete, which was then formed into wall slabs, walkways, and railings by day laborers on the job site. The reinforcing steel used in the wall slabs was provided by Bethlehem Steel, which is located in West Seattle. The steel sheet piling was purchased by the city from three different companies, Puget Construction Steel, Columbia Steel, and Inland Steel. Even just keeping track of the papers was quite a significant undertaking. The tide was utilized by the construction team in the placement of the pier toppers. Several sections of the pier cap grids were constructed off site at the city's yard on Harbor Island, with each piling connection point pre cut to match the piling's dimensions. Sections were floated in at high tide and let to settle into position when the tide receded. In order to fill the newly dry land after sections of the wall were completed, the Washington Tug and Barge Company brought in scows filled with gravel from the mouth of the Cedar River. The gravel, approximately 270,000 cubic yards worth, was transported via the Lake Washington Ship Canal on the Ballard Locks, and then around West Point to Elliott Bay. Using cranes, each of the 667 loads was lifted from the deck of the scow and dropped on the eastern edge of Railroad Avenue, where it was secured behind the wall. In order to avoid the formation of voids that could later settle, the material was pumped into place. After a request from the City Engineering Department in November of 1934, the Board of Public Works approved an alternate design for the railing that ran parallel to the walkway. The initial design planned for galvanized tubing and mesh to be used to construct a railing that would be painted after installation. As a result of concerns being raised about how quickly the railing's aesthetics might deteriorate, the city ended up deciding to construct it with concrete. It is possible to precast sections of the railing, such as post rails and pickets, which would then be installed along the sidewalk while it was being built. In addition, cast bronze ship wheels were to be used as decorative elements, as were cast bronze rosette bolts on the larger posts that were to be spaced at regular intervals along the railing. Numerous suggestions for naming the new roadway that would be erected on top of the fill to replace the Trestleborn Railroad Avenue poured in from around the Evergreen State including Cosmos Quay, Seawall Avenue, The Battery, Dock Street, Port Strand, Boy Boulong, Salt Spray Way, and Export Way, among numerous others I won't get into here. After the construction of the seawall and other upgrades was completed in 1936, a decision was made. The last fill was deposited in August of 1936 and the entire project was completed in December of that year. The Alaska Yukon Pioneers, a local organization, recommended the name Alaskan Way, which was adopted by the city. According to the Argus, the name dignifies its importance and emphasizes its traditions as the point from which the Argonauts embarked for the goldfields of the north. The name also emphasized the continuous importance of the Alaska trade for Seattle, even as the city's trade with other parts of the world grew in prominence. Alaska Yukon pioneers conducted a civic exposition in November of 1937 to mark the beginning of the New Alaskan Way, and Potlatch Days was held in July of 1938 to celebrate the beginning of the new street. A celebration of Gold Rush history was on show at the exposition, which included exhibits from Alaskan villages as well as reconstructions of dance halls and displays of Alaska treasures, such as a strong box that had housed the first shipment of gold delivered to Seattle from the Klondike in 1897. The Potlatch Day's event included a ribbon-cutting ceremony and the christening of the street by Sourdough Queen Mary Wingy, who used water from Puget Sound to bless the street. The wall performed just as it was designed to. The waterfront could now operate on solid ground, which eliminated the need for continuous monitoring and maintenance of pilings, planking, and other structures. Because of the ease with which vehicles could navigate the waterfront, it made it easier for the numerous trains, automobiles, and pedestrians to coexist. However, the ease with which vehicles could navigate the waterfront attracted so many vehicles hoping to avoid congested downtown streets that by 1939 the Propeller Club, a maritime commerce club, had petitioned the city to address traffic issues on Alaskan Way. According to their petition, the use of the waterfront as a traffic bypass is having a detrimental effect on our most important industry, the shipping industry. If serious damage to the city's maritime commerce is to be prevented, it is imperative that immediate relief be sought. The Alaskan Way Viaduct, the first part of which was completed in 1953, was the final answer to the traffic congestion problem. In 1937, regular inspections of the seawall revealed only minor difficulties. It wasn't until 1949 that major corrosion of the sheet piling was discovered. This corrosion was caused by electric charges that naturally formed in the water, moving in and out of the steel. When the tide rose, the microscopic gaps in the wall allowed seawater to seep behind the wall and cause it to collapse. As the tide receded, some of the fill behind the wall was able to escape through the holes in the structure. By the 1960s, the fill around the relieving platform would have settled, causing the platform to become unstable. In spite of the fact that the function of the relieving platform appears to have not been compromised, it did result in the formation of voids right below the untreated timbers that formed the pier cap and pilings. After a high tide had arrived, such cavities were filled with water, which invariably carried marine borer larvae, mainly Toretto and Gribbles, with it. As they ate away at the wood, the structure began to crumble. The city began by putting riprap around the base of the wall in an attempt to decrease the quantity of fill that was escaping from behind it. More riprap was installed on a regular basis as the previous stuff around the front of the wall began to sink. The installation of a cathodic protection system was completed in 1959. Specifically, this involved the installation of anodes at various positions along the wall in order to gather electric charge and discharge it back into the surrounding environment before it could reach the metal components of the seawall. More cathodic protection was added in 1972, and a study conducted in 1979 found that it was largely effective. Tidal action and storms also contributed to the deterioration of the seawall. By the 1980s, the structures had begun to show signs of wear and new structural difficulties had arisen. According to a 1981 report, the seawall had also developed into a serious maintenance problem. The city refaced 1,400 feet of the seawall with ecky wood, a dense hardwood resistant to marine bores, which effectively strengthened the seawall's structural integrity and improved its appearance. Concerns regarding the structural integrity of the Alaskan Way viaduct arose during the 2001 Nisqually earthquake, which received widespread public attention. For quite some time, government authorities had been evaluating the structural integrity of the viaduct. Officials were also concerned about the long-term structural integrity of the seawall. It became more evident how vulnerable the barrier was after a 1,000-square-foot portion of Alaskan Way settled as a result of the quake. The Seattle Department of Transportation began planning for the replacement of the seawall around this time. In 2004, city inspectors were surprised to discover that borers had damaged 40% of the wood boards they had examined, a significant increase from the 3% damage rate they had discovered just the year prior. There had been concerns raised that the wall could collapse completely in the event of another earthquake. It was determined in 2002 that the replacement of the seawall and viaduct would be combined into a single project by the City of Seattle and the Washington State Department of Transportation. A cut-and-cover tunnel with a new seawall acting as the tunnel's western wall was one of several suggestions for replacing the viaduct that were put up by the group. It was finally agreed in 2009 that the viaduct would be replaced by a board tunnel and the seawall replacement was decoupled from the tunnel project after a protracted period of public debate. In order to lessen the likelihood of liquefaction following an earthquake, city engineers designed a plan to replace the seawall with a soil enhancement technique known as jet grouting. They also developed a plan to install new seawall facing and improve marine habitat along the wall. Construction on the seawall replacement began in November 2013. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and to expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the King County Historical Society, the Seattle Room at the Central Seattle Library, the University of Washington Libraries, the Seattle and Washington State Department of Transportation websites, historylink.org, waterfrontseattle.com, road traffic technology, and researchgate.net. Thank you for listening to episode 93, in Early History of the Alaskan Way Seawall. Episode 94 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast, and until next time, I'm your host, John C.
0: There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queeds and on the hole. There's calm on the Nisqually born of ageless ice and snow, a land that nature loves so much she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's chimicum and stilicum where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck. And Moklips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.